exclusive podcast from Impact 89FM. For the student programs in MSU College Veterinary Medicine. Um, actually, we also have Jeff Coven. Uh, he is the Director of Primary Care for MSU Sports Medicine. Um, then we have Kay Kopovitz. Uh, she will be, well, she's the founder of USA Network. Uh, we also have a story about MSU recycling and how they'll be res- uh, uh, establishing and expanding their program on campus in the residence halls. But first, we've got MSU Today with MSU's Department of Telecommunication, Information Studies, and Media here on your Friday Night Insight, 88.9 FM. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Today I'm at MSU's Gel Lab. I'm visiting with Brian Wynn, Brian McGurko, and Carrie Heater. All three are on the faculty in MSU's Department of Telecommunication, Information Studies, and Media. Wynn and McGurko co-direct the Gel Lab, and Heater is a principal investigator in the lab. They are all three involved in MSU's new Serious Games initiative as well. Brian Wynn, what is the Gel Lab? The Gel Lab is the Games for Entertainment and Learning Lab. It started in, I think, fall of 2005. It's an association of faculty, graduate students, undergraduate students, all working on research and development projects surrounding video games. So expound on that a little bit more. Games for entertainment and learning, how are they different maybe from games for enjoyment like a Madden 07 or something? Well, I mean, we do look at at traditional video games, games that you play for purely entertainment purposes, but uh, one of our major thrusts is the games for learning component, so looking at using games for purposes other than just purely entertainment. So games that are still fun to play, but you get something out of them beyond just an enjoyable experience. I guess that's the distinction, too, right? Every game has to be fun. I didn't think about that. Nobody's going to play a boring game. So is the idea to, I guess, get people to learn as well as be entertained or while they're entertained through video games, correct? Well, certainly, yeah. Video games are, you know, as a as a medium, have grown in importance in our society. People go to play games um, for enjoyment, of course. They, they have qualities that, that attract people, Um uh, you know, and they're a very engaging, interactive experience. So we can use them for purposes other than just entertainment. We can we can harness that interactive nature and use it for purposes of learning, for example. So this is we look at games that are already out there as as well as create some. Definitely, yeah. We you know we we analyze games um, as well as create our own games. You know, we've got a number of of funded projects um, that we're working on serious games. So serious games are, are how we sort of designate uh, the you know sort of the, the state of the art term for games for learning games for health you know basically taking any sort of game and using it for purposes other than just entertainment. So can you give me one example of a game you've either either analyzed or developed that you would call a, a game that was for learning? Well, one of the projects that we're working on now is basically taking. Uh, a series of games that exercise different cognitive functions. So, you know, the idea is as you age, uh, you lose some of your cognitive abilities. Um, so with games, it allows you to have new experiences, allows you to target certain cognitive um, functions and exercise them just like you would go to the gym and exercise certain muscle groups and so forth. So that's that's an idea of, of fun games that you would play um, that have a very serious purpose. So summarize for me again sort of the, the mission of the Gel Lab or why it exists. 
the gel lab exists um, basically as a as a home for uh, faculty and graduate students doing work in the area of games. So uh, any sort of project related to um, serious games, educational games, and so forth um, going on runs through the gel lab. Well, Brian, let's segue to you now because part of what we have here too in the gel lab and telecom is the video game design specialization, right? I mean, tell us what that is. Um, so the video game specialization here is an opportunity for students in uh, the telecom department, in the computer science department, and in the studio art department, all to take classes as a cohort together. There's four classes in which they kind of specialize their, their major. So they're all taking their major course of study, but um, focusing it on game design development. And then to what kind of jobs does this lead, hopefully? Well, hopefully it either leads to jobs that are actually in the game industry or the simulation industry, um, or it just better prepares them for um, uh, pursuing uh, jobs within their specific course of study. And how is it unfolding? I guess the first class will graduate this uh, spring, but how is it going so far? All right, it's going great. Um, we had uh, about 15 students in the 3D um, games course last semester. Um, we had three uh, quality games come out of that course. Um, students had roughly four to five students in each teams. Um, and this semester they're working a little bit larger teams on a whole semester long project in the uh, kind of senior design project course that is the, the end of the game specialization. Um, they serve outside clients so there's actually two teams of uh, about eight or seven um, and there are outside clients that the students have to contact, um, work with, and um, develop a product for, a game, uh, specifically a game, obviously. So you've kind of said it, but s sum up the mission, if, you, if there is one, of the program. Well, the mission is to give students the opportunity to have a more in-depth experience in their, sp in their specific major, whether it be studio art, computer science, or telecom, in something that they're passionate about, like video games. Carrie Heater is another member of the Gel Lab team and is involved in MSU's initiative to establish a course of study inside a master's degree in telecommunication information studies and media that focuses on serious games. Carrie, tell us more, please. Well, everybody knows that games are fun, uh, at least good games are fun, but games are also powerful, and games impact the player. And uh, Serious Games is about games and the power of games beyond just fun. So elaborate a little bit on what a serious game is you started to. I was exploring the Nobel Peace Prize site, and I encountered a game by the American Red Cross called the Prisoner of War Game. And... This is an example of how playing the Geneva Convention is completely different than reading the Con Geneva Convention. So I had never actually read it before. I assumed that it was a 280-page document with many footnotes. And I was shocked as I got to, right before you play the game, you have the opportunity to read it. It's a, a couple of paragraphs. Okay, so that was a surprise. And, and I thought, okay, well, now I've got it. Then I went into the game. It's a very short game. And initially, you evaluate eight individuals to determine whether or not they should be granted prisoner of war status which i never realized was a, a, a good thing to be granted if you're you know in, in the in the in the realm of well if you if you're going to be imprisoned you'd rather anyway so, so so you apply what you've read and and it brings out nuances that hadn't occurred to you in simply reading it because it brings out individual cases and you think oh okay now i understand it more deeply 
Then they move you into running a prisoner of war camp, and that simply means responding to requests from prisoners, from the press, and from, from, from uh, countries and publics applying the Geneva Convention, and that too brings out nuances. And I realized after, after playing that 10-minute game that I had a completely different and deeper understanding of it than I had ever had. And that's just an example of how games impact the player in different ways, in, in role-play games and in different things. And, and it's an area that's just fascinating. Right, because it's not well understood yet. It's 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 got some new territory in there. What what is the impact of engagement of it of it of of attention of 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 the play factor and how does knowledge interplay? When people play fun games right now, they learn. They just don't learn things that actually matter, you know. And how else does it affect us? Anyway, so we are starting a serious game design master's program course of study, and um, serious games are even harder to make than fun games because it brings together, you, you, you want accurate and meaningful content, you need, you need the purposes to be there. There's all sorts of different theories. There's theories of learning, as you might understand, there's psychological theories, um, perception, um, persuasion, human-computer interac interaction, consumer behavior. So, so you need to not just know everything you need to know to design a good game, but you need all these other kinds of things, and you need research to make it better and that kind of thing. So Michigan State University has many, many faculty working in this area to understand it better, to apply the power of it, to create games in a, in a range of different areas. And we're looking for students who want to change the world with us, who want to explore this area. We're looking for students from a wide variety of backgrounds with a bachelor's degree in could be computer science, could be art, but it could also be epidemiology or environmental science, in other words, content experts, or psychology or education. In other words, we want to get together people who are as fascinated by this as we are. And we are also bringing together industry advisors so that we're connected with the jobs and what, what, what the real world wants. And we're, we're, we, we will bring people to the point where, where we're exploring this space together. We're teaching you how to make serious games, how to understand the theory of it, how to do research. And, and, and doing many, many projects to come out and enter this area with, with, with a great background. So we, we are re recruiting now. It's just starting up. Um, the deadline for application is early April, and the very first batch of students will begin with us in fall. We have 20 faculty members from 11 departments, including museum studies and, and, and education and, and telecommunication information studies and media. So it will be very interdisciplinary, and the most important thing that you would have coming into this is a passionate interest. And, and, and the faculty are also fascinated by this, and, and our growing number of people from industry are, are eager for people to come. They, they want to um, uh, help teach. They, they, they're going to do mini lectures. They're going to offer internships and things like that. And so together we will explore this space and change the world. So it will be, you, you will get very special attention. You, we will care about you. We will work with you. You will be with faculty from the Gel Lab who are creating things like cognitive games, games for nutrition education, um, games, uh, any, is it fa fascinating questions, uh, learning with the world how to make these, what impact they have. So how do people get more information about MSU's Serious Games initiative? You can start with the website, with it, which is seriousgames, that's one word, dot msu.edu. Or you can simply email me. I'm, I'm the co-champion of this program of study. Heater, H-E-E-T-E-R, at msu.edu. Is there anything you'd like to add, Carrie? The Serious Game Design course of study aims at the heart of serious game design. 
So we go right at the center of game design, theory, and content. In our program, in, in the course of study, we will give everyone the common ground of how to design serious games, the, some of the uh, uh, pieces of theories and things. We will help you develop an area of specialization in, in these 11 different departments. You, you may um, focus on, on your, your, your elective credits in computer science so, so that you really develop that, or, or in, in education and things like that, so, so that you're, we'll help you target where you're trying to go in industry, what you want to do. And, and you're right, you, you come here because you see the power and the fun of games and you want to do more. Maybe you, maybe you even have an undergraduate specialization completed in game design. And you think, what's next? Do I want to go to electronic arts and, 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 and just, just work on huge teams of, of fun games? Or do I, or, or do I want to take this and, and, and do even more in the world? Do I, do, I, do I want to make people more aware of what they can do to help the environment? Um, do I want to change the nature of fourth grade so that you win fourth grade instead of instead of um, sitting in a classroom all the time? I mean, th this this is a an emerging tool. It's a powerful tool, and together with the faculty here and the industry advisors, we're looking for interesting, talented people to students to join us in in this endeavor and then to go out and, and change the world. That's Carrie Heater from MSU's Department of Telecommunication, Information Studies, and Media the Gel Lab, and the forthcoming Serious Games course of study inside the master's program in the department. You also heard from assistant professors Brian Wynn and Brian McGurko, who are also involved in the Gel Lab and Serious Games course of study. For more information on the Games for Entertainment and Learning Lab on the web, you can visit gel, that's G-E-L, gel.msu.edu, and for more information on the Serious Games Initiative, that site is SeriousGames, one word, SeriousGames.msu.edu. And for more MSU Today, please visit us on the web at msutoday.com. I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio from Michigan State University. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9. The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Aluminum cans, plastic water bottles, printer cartridges, and tin. Most students living on campus throw these recyclable materials away. However, a joint committee on campus hopes to expand the campus recycling program in the residence halls to include more recyclables. Students on one floor in selected dorms will have an opportunity to participate in a pilot recycling program, a joint committee consisting of university housing, hall managers, and concerned faculty and students organize this pilot project. The committee selected four residence halls for the project, 
Holmes, Hubbard, Shaw, and Williams. South Complex Housing Operations Manager Diane Barker says that the committee selected these four dorms to get a better range in data. Residence halls differ in size and layout, factors which could affect the recycling needs of that hall. Barker. Um, what might be good for Shaw might not be good for Wilson and vice versa, just because of the way the docks are laid out, the way the buildings are laid out, the way the storage facilities and the floors are laid out. Barker plays a coordinating role in the pilot recycling program. She will compile and analyze data collected by the students from the organization ECO. ECO is an environmental student group at Michigan State. These students are concerned about the limited recycling in residence halls. ECO policy chair and MSU sophomore Kareen Thomas says that this concern is shared by students campus-wide. Students are really interested in recycling, and you hear it a lot that people are disappointed when they come here to Michigan State and they can't recycle. Last spring, eco students collected more than 6,000 signatures in a recycling petition. They presented the petition to the Board of Trustees. Now eco will be counting cans and collecting data. Barker says that this is important in creating a recycling program on campus that fits students' needs without increasing the cost. And if we can become more sustainable and and do this, this is good. But we do have to look at the cost effectiveness, the impact of cost to, um, you know, students that are paying room and board, those types of things. Barker has been involved in recycling efforts on campus for 15 years. The pilot recycling program is just one of many recycling efforts on campus. These efforts include recycling programs in kitchens in South, East, and Brody complexes, cardboard recycling during fall move-in, newspaper and office recycling across campus, and clothing and lumber collections at the end of the year. The pilot recycling program will include aluminum, tin, number one and two plastics, milk jugs, printer cartridges, and fiber. The pilot recycling program will take place from February 5th through March 2nd. This is Melissa Horst for Impact Radio. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio from the campus of Michigan State University, WDBM East Lansing, and Spartan Podcast at SpartanPodcast.com. Kay Koplovitz, cable television pioneer and holder of a master's from MSU, was the commencement speaker at fall graduation in uh, December of 2006 at MSU. Uh, I'm Russ White, and I caught up with Kay Koplovitz just before she was about to address the students at MSU and asked her to recall those early days of cable television and how kind of 
the whole thing got started. Well, actually, the uh, origins of USA Network started here at MSU when I was a graduate student, wrote my master's thesis on satellite technology and uh, its impact on communications, cultures, governments. And actually, I, when I went back and reviewed it about five years ago, I, I thought to myself, no wonder people thought I was from outer space, because um, it seemed esoteric at the time, I'm sure, that, uh, that we would be using satellites for sending programs down to people's homes uh, directly or through cable systems. Because at that time, there were really only three broadcast networks and maybe a few independent television stations, and it seemed like quite enough to everyone, and why would I be doing this anyway? Uh, but it was something that really gripped me as something important to do, and and I um, I was a little earlier in my career as an undergraduate student, a television producer, uh, even though I have a science degree. Uh, one of my jobs was being a television producer. And I worked for WTMJ in Milwaukee in between semesters. And after I graduated, right after I graduated from the University of Wisconsin, and I could see that people at the station were very proud of me of being the first woman producer at the television station. But I could also see that they did not see me as the manager of the television station, the president of the television company, nor the president of NBC, which is what I wanted to be. So I left, and I went into satellite communications, and uh, I thought, I'm going to start my own program networks. And uh, it was so my dream. I wrote my master's thesis here, and I never let go of that dream. Uh, I worked at the satellite industry, the cable industry, just to prepare myself for the time that the opportunity was ripe. And, and when it came, I took advantage of it and uh, was uh, fortunate enough to be in the right place, know the right people, have worked enough in the industry to uh, be able to get the backing to launch Madison Square Garden Sports, which was a forerunner to USA. So, um, you know, it's a dream come true. Can you talk a bit more about how your time at MSU maybe shaped how you even are today? Well, I was here for one year, or less than one year, actually, to write my master's thesis. I had a wonderful professor, Dr. Walter Emery. And I came and interviewed uh, at this university and others uh, with my thesis in mind. I was already possessed by my passion, and I wanted to write on satellite uh, technologies and how they would affect communications. And surprisingly, a number of universities uh, didn't see the wisdom of that. I couldn't find someone who wanted to take that as a thesis. Wisconsin would, of course. I was a you know, good student, uh, uh, you know, an honor student at the university. But I, I wanted to do, go someplace else. I just wanted to have a different experience. And I interviewed with Walter, Dr. Walter Emery, and he was a professor of international law. And he said to me, and I can hear his voice, he said to me, well, okay. He said, I don't know anything about satellites. I don't know anything about communications. But if what you say is true, it's going to have a big impact on international law. So I'd be delighted to have you study here. And I came as a merit scholar. And I was in a special international program of, I think, 10 students, all from different disciplines, agriculture, economics, communications, etc. It was a fascinating one-year program, actually. Uh, 
and it was internationally oriented. It was under the supervision of Dr. Emery. Who were some of your other early mentors, even as you began to get into the business? Well, I would have to say that my father influenced me a great deal um, in in sort of what my morals are, uh, in wh- how I looked at life and people. And uh, my mother uh, influenced my spirit. Uh, they're plain folks. Uh, from, I'm from Wisconsin. They're uh, just good, solid, working, middle-class people. Um, but I had great value for education and uh, had absolutely an open mind to anything their children wanted to do. So I never had any idea or thoughts presented to me that I shouldn't be just anything I wanted to be. Although my father insisted that I take typing in high school, which I refused to do. I said, I'm not going to be a secretary, and that's that, Pop. And I just went on. Of course, today, with computers, we all type everything, and, you know, we text message and do all these sorts of things, so maybe he was prescient. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, so my parents certainly had a good influence on me. I had teachers who had uh, a terrific influence on me. Um, in high school, one in particular, who was a very strange man, Dr. Parmalee, who taught chemistry, not my best subject, um, but he was a very dis- typical, out-of-central casting chemistry teacher. His clothes never fit. His stomach bulged out of his shirt. His tie couldn't button his button, so his shirt would be open, but the tie would go across the open. And he sort of drooled when he talked, but I really found him an endearing character. And he had, uh, in our high school, uh, was not a premier suburban high school, um, South Markey High School. Uh, and there weren't a lot of students that went to college. I think a very small percentage, actually, of us went to college. Uh, but Dr. Parmalee had high aspirations for me. Uh, and uh, so in his weirdness, he was a mentor. Uh, so uh, he certainly was an encourager of high aspirations, which I think people need to have somewhere along the line, you know. Kay Koplovitz is with us on MSU today. Who do you admire in the in the business today? Well, I admired David Packard uh, for a lot of reasons. He's deceased now, of course. Um, I just thought that the environment that they created and the vision they had for technologies uh, was, and, and especially their philanth- his philanthropic uh, contributions, uh, really. I really admire. Um, others have followed. Others preceded him, of course. You know, we have the Rockefellers and the, you know, many people who built the nation in various types of industries and have given back a great deal uh, to our country. But I, I, in my earlier days, a person that I greatly uh, admired. Uh, there are, you know, many other people uh, that that I would say that sort of influence my thinking. Some of them philosophers, some of them writers. Um, Solzhenitsyn influenced my thinking in literature. Uh, so, and in in human uh, sort of human actions and human inspirations and the deviousness of the human mind as well. I mean, you know, there's the good and the evil in everyone uh, and. We hope good wins out. But so lots of people influence me. I'm a sort of a person who 
I'm a futurist, not a historian. I'm kind of weak on history. Um, I like the future a lot. I can remember the future better than I can remember the past. Um, but I just think that uh, I was fortunate enough to have exposure to a liberal arts education, which I think is very important, actually. Uh, undervalued by some uh, in our society. I think science is great. I was a science major myself in biology. I love science. I think it's you know terrific, but I also think you need to have sort of that expansive encouragement of the liberal arts where things are possible. Um, maybe not replicatable, but possible. And uh, so I think they're both great influences for me. Let's talk a bit about what you're doing now. You've created Springboard Enterprises, uh, Bold Cap Ventures, and, and of course, Koplovitz and Company. And you're a leader in raising venture capital, capital for women entrepreneurs and in launching new programming companies that challenge the frontiers of this digital age we're in. Talk a bit about this overarching goal of helping women launch businesses and how your companies are related in achieving that goal, hopefully. Yes, I, I think giving back is very important. And when I uh, launched Madison Square Garden Sports, the forerunner to USA, there was no capital. Uh, even banks didn't want to lend to television companies. I mean, cash flow businesses were not uh, in favor. Uh, and everybody thought this was a, an incredibly stupid idea, perhaps, uh, the, to launch programs via satellite and cable. So. There, the only person who understood it was a man that, that I worked for in the cable industry, Bob Rosencrantz, who understood my passion for this and understood, the, because he was uh, CEO of a cable company, understood how it could change his business and make it extremely more profitable. Uh, if he could get more subscribers, and to get more subscribers, you needed programming. So I knew sort of intuitively, even though I came from the television side of the business, intuitively, that that you could uh, improve the and make the cable business very much more lucrative uh, if you had original programming. So when I did that, there was not access to capital. Twenty-some years later, when I left USA Networks, 21 years later, 1998, I looked around and I realized women still weren't getting access to capital. Now, my lack of access to capital back in the 70s was not necessarily because I was a woman, but I didn't even get that far. I mean, because there's just nobody was interested in the industry. But in 1998, money, capital, was pouring over the transom. I mean, it was like drinking from a fire hose. And a lot of it was getting wasted, but not on women, because women weren't accessing it. And I said, this is wrong. There were a lot of women in sciences, biotechnology, technology, software, uh, media, and you know, launching companies under capital starvation. And I said, this is wrong, and I'm going to do something about it. So I um, started out uh, as a chair of the National Women's Business Council at the time on a presidential appointment and used that platform to really bring together private equity uh, to get women up in front of venture capitalists to identify women who are starting high-growth companies that would be interesting to venture capitalists and to really get them in front of them. And um, we launched with the first venture capital forum in uh, January 2000. We had gotten 350 applications, three times the number we were hoping for. We chose 26 companies to present. At that capital forum, 22 of them got funded 
two of them merged their companies. One woman sold her company and one woman wasn't funded. It was a spectacular outcome, unheard of in the venture capital community, that so many companies would be funded. And I think it's because these companies were so far below the radar screen that venture capitalists assumed they were not worthy of seeing. So that really started... uh, the springboard enterprises. Uh, since that time, we've presented 16 venture capital forums. We do them in different cities, now mostly in Boston, Chicago, and Silicon Valley, but we've done them in New York and Dallas and other places. And we've presented 347 companies. Uh, 42% of our companies get funding out of our venture capital forums. 80% of them ultimately get funding, and that's because we train them. We train them about what venture capital means to them. It's equity position in their company. Those equity investors want to get a payback. They want to get three to five times their money in five years or less. And, uh, you know, you've got to be a high-growth company to meet these, uh, you know, benchmarks. And we teach them how to talk to venture capitalists. And and so it's a whole training process that we put them through, a boot camp. It's rigorous. They learn a lot. They are morphed when they come into the boot camp and when they leave the boot camp. You're seeing different people. You're seeing with confidence uh, and presentation skills as well as business plans that have been toughened up. And uh, our companies have raised $3.7 billion. Um, We've had six IPOs. 25% of our companies have already sold for positive liquidity events for their investors. It is perhaps the best thing I've ever done in my life. Kay Kaplovitz, what steps do you recommend today's young MSU women take to grow a career in communications? Well, I think you, you know, there's so many choices uh, to people in communications because um, we're now in a chaotic period. This is a wonderful time to be in this discipline because we're in chaos. And in chaos, there's magnificent opportunity. I love chaos for this reason. Now, if I were an old established media company, I would be frightened because this chaotic environment is upturning all of the business underpinnings of different companies, and a lot is at risk. But for someone coming into the business, risk is a good thing. So I think people you know, really need to train the skills, think about what really excites them, find and experiment with as many different forms in the communication field, whether that's online, whether that's mobile, whether that's... Uh, production techniques, whatever area that they really feel um, excited by, and really vigorously explore all the different opportunities until something really grabs hold of them that they really want to get up every day and do that. That's true of anything. I mean, it's true if you're a doctor, a teacher, a fireman, a lawyer, it doesn't really matter. You've got to want to get up and do it every day, otherwise it's just drudgery. And you know, life is so exciting. Life really should be lived. It should be enjoyed. It should be explored. Yes, we all have our challenges and we all have our periods of difficulty, but even those should be relished as lessons and we always have the will to change them. So I think today for people in communications, really the most important thing is get in, get your hands dirty, explore, try different things. And when something really grips you and you want to get up and do it every day, then just pursue it with all your vigor. And, uh, and I think you'll be a happy person. That's Kay Koplovitz, holder of a master's degree from Michigan State University. 
I'm Russ White. Thanks for listening to MSU Today on Impact Radio, WDBM East Lansing from the campus of MSU and Spartan Podcast at SpartanPodcast.com. For more MSU Today, visit us on the web at MSUToday.com. You're listening to Friday Night Insight here on the Impact 88.9 FM. I'm Melissa Horst, and that was Kay Kopelvitz. She's the founder of USA Network. Coming up, we've got a governor report, an interview with Dr. Sarah Aboud, who's a coordinator for student programs in MSU's College of Veterinary Programs here um, at MSU. But first, we have an interview with Jeff Coven, director of primary care for MSU Sports Medicine, here on your Impact 88.9 FM. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White, visiting with Dr. Jeff Covan, Director of Primary Care for MSU Sports Medicine. Dr. Covan, what are your tips for staying fit in the cold weather? You know, I I think one of the things that people have to understand is that cold weather doesn't mean to lock yourself indoors and not stay active and not stay physically fit. I think one of the most important pieces is to, first off, dress warmly but comfortably so that you can exercise but in the midst of that protect the extremities protect the fingers the toes the nose those areas and even the ears actually that are going to be more susceptible to to cold injury Uh, I think if you literally think about protecting those areas finding an exercise that you enjoy whether it's walking whether it's running um, make sure the surface you're on is is ice free is safe those kind of things allow people to still get outdoors, enjoy the winter, because it's a long haul here in the winter months, and you need to have an outlet because staying inside all day can get pretty dreary and depressing for most of us. So, so I think getting outside and being active is important. Making sure the surface you're on is crucial. Making sure you protect those areas that are most exposed is important. And wearing a hat will keep the heat in throughout your entire training program. What about breathing heavily during the cold weather? Is there a temperature at which you should cover your mouth and nose if you're exercising outside? Well, I think most of that's common sense. I think if it's really uncomfortable for breathing, then I think that's enough to say that's probably the wrong environment. Most often, our temperatures aren't going to be that cold here. It'll be the wind chill that'll get you in a little trouble. Um, and, and I think if you use common sense, if the te- temperature's in the teens and below, then you probably want to be a little more cautious before you get outside. And the surface you exercise on is paramount this time of year, isn't it? And I run outdoors all winter, except when it's brittly cold and wind chills are ridiculously cold, and the surface is really unstable because it's not worth getting injured because that defeats my purpose and most of our purposes for exercise, which is just to stay active, stay fit, um, because we like our holiday suites. And the way to be able to tolerate that a little bit is to stay on top of it and be one step ahead with your exercise. Dr. Covan, how long does a person need to get their heartbeat up to maximize the fitness potential of their workout? Well, I, I think you know most of the things that have come out from the American College of Sports Medicine is that you need to actually maintain a heart rate somewhere in the range of 70 to about 85 percent of your maximum for anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes. So really what happens for most of us as exercise is it takes us 5 or 10 minutes to get warmed up. And if you're only doing a 20-minute exercise, you've only got 10 minutes of really maintaining a heart rate in an appropriate zone to get the cardiovascular benefits, just the general physical fitness benefits and endurance benefits that you want out of that. So if you think about a 5-minute to 10-minute warm-up and a 5-minute to 10-minute cool-down, and then a 30-minute exercise where you really maintain that heart rate, and when I say 70 to 85% of your maximum, If you take 220 minus your age and then multiply that by 70% or up to 85%, that is the target you want to try to keep your heart rate during that 30 minutes. So if you're able to do that, then you really get the cardiovascular benefits and the fitness and weight loss and calorie burning benefits that we all look for with our exercise. What is sports medicine exactly, Jeff? That's a great question because, you know, here at Michigan State, 
MSU sports medicine is who we are, and the perception for years has been that we take care of our MSU athletes, and we do, but that's a very small part of what we do, and most of that time is outside of the normal 8 to 5. That's evenings, that's weekends, that's games, that's all the time we take care of them away from the normal day. But our office really is about anybody and everybody who's active. And I think sports medicine doesn't mean you're elite. Sports medicine doesn't mean you're 14 to 18 years old. Sports medicine is a six-year-old soccer player who has heel pain. Uh, Sports medicine is a 78-year-old racquetball player whose shoulder develops some soreness. Um, Sports medicine could be the people that are walking in the malls in the winter to stay active and fit, who start getting some knee pain. And when people call our office, what we ask for is, are you active? What do you do for active? Is it somebody who sits on the couch and now has back pain? Well, that's not what we call sports medicine. But if you're a walker, if, if you're active, if you're doing things that in some way your injury, your illness, whether it's a medical problem, whether it's a musculoskeletal problem, and it and somehow impacts your ability to perform the sport or activity you enjoy, then that's what we're here for. So we see about everybody for about everything. But we really try to limit it or really try to focus it more on those people who are active. Summarize again, if you will, your advice for getting or staying fit. You know, I, I think first and foremost is that we all get real excited after the first of the year that that's our resolution, that we're jumping on board now and we're going to get ourselves fit. Well, first off, you can't just run into this. You have to walk into it. You have to understand where you start in the process. And for some of us, that means getting an evaluation by a physician to get you cleared for that. Because some of us over 35, there are risks we put ourselves into when we jump into exercise. Um, So first and foremost, get cleared by your physician so that you're able to then start a program. And when you start the program, you don't start running, you start walking. And, And I don't mean that in a literal sense, but you start with exercising 30 minutes to 40 minutes at a slower pace and build up from there to maintain that heart rate that we talked about earlier at about 70 to 85 percent of your maximum. When you go outdoors, just make sure, number one, the surface you're on is safe. It's not, it's dry, it's not icy, it's not snow-packed. Protect those areas that are most at risk for exposure. Toes, fingers, nose, ears. Wearing a hat will keep the heat in. Dress appropriately and layer yourself so you're covered and protected that way. If you go indoors, same thing is make sure you have the appropriate attire when you exercise. You don't need to have a lot of sweats. You don't need to overheat and do those kind of things. But make sure you're dressed appropriately with the right shoes and the right clothing and have somebody instruct you on how to use the equipment appropriately. And then once that's done, then you're ready to start progressing your program you know, three to four times at minimum a week and build up throughout the winter months. That's Dr. Jeff Covan, Director of Primary Care for MSU Sports Medicine. For more MSU Sports Medicine on the web, visit rad.msu.edu and click on Sports Medicine. And for more MSU Today, visit us on the web at msutoday.com. I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. 
variety than you'll hear on any other station. Listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Saturday nights from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., tune into the cultural vibe to hear the best in both local and national hip-hop, plus live mixing on the ones and twos. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Dr. Sarah Aboud is coordinator for student programs in MSU's College of Veterinary Medicine and an assistant professor in the Small Animal Teaching Hospital. Her specialty is small animal nutrition. That mostly means dogs and cats. And what they eat, when the, what they're eating when they're healthy, and how I help their, I also help their owners um, manage problems when they're not so healthy. When they're sick in the hospital, I consult with our veterinarians here on staff and the students, and I'm teaching students about nutrition for pets. Welcome to MSU Today, Dr. Aboud. So what are some of the issues in pet nutrition today? One of the biggest issues in pet nutrition these days is obesity. Um, depending on who you read, there are anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of dogs and cats in the United States that are considered overweight or obese. That's a major nutrition problem. Other nutrition problems are associated typically with animals that have chronic diseases. So for conditions such as diabetes, chronic renal failure, or cancer, we have diets or management therapies that we attempt to use to help animals through the acute phase when, when something's really flaring up or the chronic phase of the disease process. Do obese dogs tend to be owned by obese people? There, there are um, some indirect sorts of pieces of information that we have that indicate that uh, overweight dogs and cats tend to be owned by overweight people. Um, so some of it is our sedentary lifestyles. Although there are lots of people who are very active, um, there are millions of dogs and cats, and most of them spend time indoors, especially in cold winter months, and most of their owners are exposed to a lot of easy, cheap food. You know, fast food restaurants are available for everyone, and so people's busy lifestyles, eating on the go, tend to contribute to less exercise for their pets. So what advice do you have for pet owners who think they have an overweight dog or cat? For a lot of the pet owners that I see who are um, clients of our teaching hospital. Um, by the time they get to me, they've heard lots of advice from their their own veterinarian. And so the advice is the same, but people don't always want to follow it. And it is pretty basic. You know, ingest fewer calories than you burn or burn more calories um, to try to lose weight. So for our pets, what can we do? I mean, as, as animal owners, we're in control of the food that they eat and the exercise that they get. So we need to do th simple things like use a measuring cup to portion out their food. If we're free choice feeding them, if we're, if we're filling up the food bowl, and we're not really understanding how many calories that they need, they're at more risk for obesity, especially if they're a, a breed of dog or cat that's more prone to obesity. And you might ask, well, what are some of those breeds? And actually more and more there are a lot of them, but... Um, some of the breeds are Labradors, Golden Retrievers, and Beagles. And, and it won't surprise you that those are some of the most popular breeds. So people have popular pets. People tend to overfeed themselves, not exercise as much. We tend to do that with our favorite pets. 
those are some breeds that over time have become genetically predisposed to obesity. So, so portioning out their food, understanding for their body weight and their age and their activity level, how many calories actually do they need a day? Most owners would be very surprised to realize that their pets need very little in terms of volume of food. And that's because the pet food companies have taken all the work out of it for us. You know, so, so foods are very energy dense and foods that are marketed as complete and balanced for a young growing animal or an adult have all that that animal needs. We don't really need to supplement anything else. And when we come along and, and add in lots of commercial treats and snacks or people food right from the table or from the fridge or from the counter, we're, we're adding calories and we don't even of, often know how much. So minimizing treats or choosing low calorie, no calorie kinds of treats is, is always something that pet owners can talk to their veterinarians about. And the question they should ask is, how can I feed low-calorie, no-calorie treats? What, what are some good recommendations? People might be surprised to know that depending on the size of the dog treat, commercial dog treats can range anywhere from 10 calories apiece to over 300 calories apiece. And if you're a dog that only weighs 20 or 40 pounds, a couple of you know, 40 or 50 calorie treats can really add up over time. So that lends itself to this overweight or this obese condition. Cat treats, on the other hand, no matter who's making them, always tend to be in between two to four calories a piece because cats have about the same mouth structure, mouth size, and, and so the, the calorie or the kibble size of the treat, the shape of the treat, does not need to be big for a big cat versus a small cat. Measuring the food, reducing calories in the treats that people give, and portioning those out, and then increasing exercise. Those are um, exercise or activity. Those are the three big things that folks can do to maintain a good weight in their pet. And, and how do you do that in the winter months? Sometimes people say, well, my, my dog or my cat, they've never been a big exerciser, right? It's, and so you, you stop thinking about it as exercise, like, oh, gosh, I've got to walk the dog for half a mile out in the cold weather. You think more about it in terms of I'm going to increase their activity. How could I do that? For animals in which I'm actually trying to help them lose a little bit of weight, I'll coach the owner on thinking about, let's put the calories in different places around the house so the animal actually has to work for their food. So stop putting it all in the bowl and making it available to them all the time. You know, if they've got stairs in the house, you can throw some up the stairs or down the stairs and let the animal go after it. Or if you're trying to teach a dog some obedience tricks or just good manners, always using a piece of their food, not an extra commercial treat, but kibble from their bowl. Use that as the treat to teach them to sit, stay, come, down, shake a paw, that kind of stuff. A little bit harder to do in cats to actually get them to exercise. So looking at all the kinds of toys that people use to um, keep cats stimulated is, is a, a thing that people can focus on. You know, one of the activities that people can do is go to the store or look at websites, see what things are available. Um, laser lights that you can flash on the wall, long fishing poles with little feathers hanging off of them. Lots of cats love those kinds of things to play. Can you summarize all that advice then, please, Dr. Aboud? Some of the key things that owners can do to help keep their animals lean are to measure out an exact amount of food for the animal each day and pay attention to the amount of treats so that they're limited and also pay attention to making sure that the treats that are given don't have a high number of calories. Another thing that people can do is look for ways to increase their pet's activity on a daily basis. 
Um, if, if that's not with toys, then it maybe it's just with movement. Um, taking animals outside on a leash to go to the bathroom, be it a dog. Um, some cats like to be walked if they've got a harness on as opposed to a collar around their neck. Uh, if owners don't know, then they can, they can try to borrow a, a harness maybe from their veterinarian or a leash from their veterinarian, take it home for a few days, see if it'll work. How do you know how much exercise or activity your pet needs? We start with... We start, you know, to try to help owners nail down, well, how much does my animal need? We start with trying to figure out, first of all, for an animal of their size, what's, a, what's their basic resting energy needs? And then through a thorough diet history, we find out where are all the calories coming from. And we try to match that up. And, and if there are way more calories than what the animal would need and the animal's overweight, we know that we have to start with decreasing where all the calories come from. But at the same time, we, we ask the owner not only to keep a food diary, but we ask them to keep an exercise diary or an activity diary. And if we find out the animal's just not even getting five or ten minutes of exercise or activity today, we ask the owner to try to ramp that up by a minute or two. So typical 40 or 50 pound dogs um, they, they should be walked on a regular basis, once or twice a day. Um, for some people, if they have a very small space in which they can walk, that might mean walking the same space, perhaps around the yard several times. Um, for other people who have access to a half a mile walk or a mile walk, um, that's, that's reasonable. But if you find even with that kind of regular exercise on board, the animal's still not losing any weight, it's time to revisit the veterinarian and talk again about where are all the calories coming from. Should we actually change the food? Should we actually cut out commercial pet treats and move to stuff like fruits and vegetables? Dr. Abood, what about tips for managing your pet's health and well-being in the cold weather? Some good things that are, that are just basic common sense when we take care of our pets in cold weather is to make sure that they're not going outside with wet paws and wet fur. And, and if they have been out on a walk and they're coming back in and, and their feet are wet, to make sure that they're dried thoroughly. Sometimes people like to put boots on their, their pet's paws when they go out for walks. Um, and, and many veterinarians will recommend this, especially if the individual animal is prone to getting their paw pads um, broken open or frozen or, or if they have sensitive paw pads and sensitive fur. Um, many many dogs do really well with um, an outside sort of a sweater or or some covering, but if they're a heavy coated animal, they they don't need that. So, it's paying attention to making sure that if animals do enjoy being outside, they always have some kind of shelter. Uh, for for some dogs, that might be a an actual dog house or um, I want to say a lean to, you know, s- something that is partially open partially closed but but even if there's some straw on the floor or a blanket you know somewhere where they could generate some warmth warmth would be important and then also the other thing is just the amount of time so there's a general recommendation for people that if they're outside with their pets and they're starting to get cold their extremities are cold they know they need to move inside their pets do too if they start to shiver their pets are probably cold uh, it's it's that same sort of common sense of like um, you're a parent and you have a small ch- uh, an infant, right? You know what what kind of what kind of blankets, what kind of exposure should you have for your infant? Well, if if you're hot or you're cold, the infant should be appropriately covered too. So, if I had to, if I had to wrap that up, I'd say um, that making sure you know common sense wise, it's making sure that your animals are not exposed to cold elements for prolonged periods of time. 
just like we just like we would go out in the cold weather with appropriate covering um, we may need to do that for dogs especially some small dogs be that sweaters or, or boots and we want to make sure that if they're out and they're exposed to wet elements in any way slush or rain or snow that when they come in they're thoroughly dried the other thing to think about is animals that stay inside during cold weather we often crank up the heat in our homes and we want to make sure that um, cats that like to cats and small dogs that like to be near heat vents and and heat sources um, have appropriate padding so that they're not burning themselves Um, we want to make sure that if we're leaving home for a while um, that we are turning the heat to an appropriate level. It can be turned can down me? so that your pipes don't freeze, but it, it doesn't have to be cranked up just for animals. I mean, they have a fur they have a fur covering for a reason. So they, they do well with the lower heat temperatures in the house. But um, anytime, well, I should, I should, one other thing I want to say is, just like in the summer months, our pets, whether they're outdoors or indoors, need fresh water sources all the time. So thinking about changing a fresh water source daily even if the pet stays indoors all the time in the winter, is an important management tool, you know, important way to take care of our pets and keep them healthy. That's Dr. Sarah Abood, coordinator for student programs in Michigan State University's College of Veterinary Medicine and an assistant professor in the Small Animal Teaching Hospital at MSU. Her specialty is small animal nutrition. For more information on the web, you can visit www.cvm. Dot msu.edu. And for more MSU Today, visit us on the web at msutoday.com. For MSU Today on Impact Radio, I'm Russ White. And we're back here with your Friday Night Insight. That was an interview with Dr. Sarah Abood. Uh, We're almost out of time here, but just a quick reminder about next week. Um, Next week's shows, we're going to focus on student parents here at Michigan State University. Hello. So if you have uh, any comments, questions, concerns, or even a story of your own about being a student parent, feel free to email our news director. His name's Mike. Um, His address is Mike at impact89fm.org and that's mike at impact89fm.org so we're about out of uh out of time here in the studio uh coming up right now we've got the governor's report here on your impact 88.9 fm hello this is governor jennifer granholm Last week, economists confirmed that the state faces $3 billion in budget shortfalls over the next two years due to declining revenue and increasing spending demands. This critical situation demands a serious analysis about how the state got into this situation and how we move forward from here, and we're doing just that. This week, three seemingly unrelated announcements underscore that we need to aggressively work our plan to diversify our economy and invest in growing the talent and skills of our citizens. First, Pfizer announced that it's eliminating more than 2,400 jobs in Michigan. Through our 21st Century Jobs Fund, we are attracting and growing high-tech companies. So a second announcement was on the same day as Pfizer's announcement. Aqua Biochip, a small high-tech company, left Michigan State University where they began to open a new office in Lansing. Another development. This week, the MEEP data evaluating our elementary and middle school students' performance was also released. And I'm pleased to say that scores across the state are up, especially in reading and math. 
Michigan's economic plan is the most aggressive in the nation, and it's the right plan to move our state forward by investing in the things that make us competitive as a state, such as our workers and our students. We are creating opportunity for all Michigan citizens. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.